Welcome to this episode of CDM Media's Executive Insights. I'm your host, J.D. Miller. A unique show for you today. We're going to dive into cybersecurity insurance and protection with Justin Daniels, Technology and Cybersecurity Counsel at Baker Donaldson. Justin recently spoke at our CDM Media Atlanta Summit, and I wanted him back to share with you some of his insights. Stealing intellectual property and threatening to download it on the dark web is just the latest iteration of cybercrime that keeps the C-suite up at night. It's all but inevitable that your organization will face a cyber incident due to our reliance on data and technology. So Justin Daniels, a technology and cybersecurity attorney, is going to join us after the break to talk about the need for good communication as the decision makers face tough business decisions based on incomplete facts under time pressure. Justin, thank you so much for being with us here today. I, I have to start out, how did you get heading down the cybersecurity path? Um, because it's a unique path for people to take in, in your field. Well, for me, and thank you for having me, it really, I can pinpoint it for you. It was right after, if you recall, the big Sony hack by the North Koreans. I was working on that case, but more importantly, for one day, I hosted the Israeli entrepreneur who's like the Israeli version of Steve Jobs. And he was coming to Atlanta to talk about uh, connected car cybersecurity thing he was working on. I spent the day with him. We literally fly from Israel to Atlanta in one day and flew back to Israel. That's an 11 hour flight. Wow. Pretty amazing. But in the course of the day, and we met with various different people and he said, you know what, Justin, you really have a great cybersecurity ecosystem here in the Atlanta area and you should get the word out. And it dawned on me, it's like, wow, this might be an area to really focus my expertise because as an attorney, there's a lot of different attorneys out there, but being a corporate M&A attorney who has a security background and works a lot in technology, I was like, this skill set would really kind of help me set, apart, set me apart. So I went down that route. I did a conference, CyberCon, for a few years. I did Atlanta Cyber Week, where I helped lead a, an opportunity to have multiple events during the week to raise awareness. But I also started to get deeply involved in the field and work on both what I call the reactive side, which is ransomware and data breaches, which we talked about earlier this week. But I also do a lot of uh, consulting and legal work relating to helping companies manage cybersecurity risk at all the stages of the life cycle of a company. Think of all these Web3 companies out there now with these blockchains that are getting hacked. Well, how do you help them build and design and think about security uh, as opposed to losing several hundreds of millions of dollars? So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So talk to me a little bit in, in this evolution you've gone through. Cybersecurity has gotten messier and messier. Talk to me about the, the challenge from a legal standpoint to stay on top of things. Oh, I think the challenge from a legal standpoint is, and we talked about this earlier this week, is, you know, as we sit today, there is in the United States, there is no overarching privacy or cybersecurity law. It is very much a sector-based approach, and then you have state law. So what's happened in the last, I'll just say, this year? Well, the Biden executive order came down. Um, CISA, which is Department of Homeland Security's agency for cybersecurity in the U.S., they've passed some regulations around critical infrastructure giving breach notification requirements. The SEC 
they've passed cyber regulations and then the state of Utah has passed a law. So now look at this. The inertia with Congress has led to regulatory agencies and states passing laws that impact privacy and security, which are very much related. And so what do you have now if you're a company, even, even your company trying to comply with privacy and security laws, uh, it's become a lot harder because it's a very convoluted patch quilt, haphazard kind of approach that will at some point really start to stifle innovation. And that's where we're at. Yeah, it's it's easy to think ransomware and data breaches, those are in the news every day. It, it's right in front of all of us, and, and, and that risk is. Talk to me about what we're not thinking about when it comes to cybersecurity risk for our organizations today. I think what we're not thinking about when it comes to risk for our organization, I'll give you a good example. So we're just now starting to come out of the pandemic. But when we went into the pandemic, companies had to quickly pivot to having all these people work from home remotely. And so what that entailed was maybe you had enough computers, maybe you didn't. So you had to figure out a way so people could log onto a computer, get access to the corporate network and do their job. Well, most people had to basically stand up these virtual private networks. And so what happened was, is, well, we got to keep the trains running. Well, did a lot of people pay attention to multi-factor authentication and the kinds of basic security hygiene you have to follow when you're logging in remotely? And that just didn't happen. So I would say the last three or four ransomware cases I worked on, the origin of the hack came from somebody working remotely who didn't have multi-factor authentication and the hacker got right in because a VPN is not going to stop if somebody hacked your password just to access that and get in. And so that's just one example of the greater theme, which is companies go and do stuff and security is an afterthought because it's inconvenient and we worship efficiency in our personal and professional lives. And that continues to be a real problem. Again, I'm seeing it with the blockchain, this emerging technology, they're making the same mistakes, drones, autonomous vehicles, Web3. They want to scale and grow quickly, which means great experience for the user, very efficient. Well, it comes not free. It comes at the expense of what? Security. You mentioned uh, a bit ago talking about M&A. And tell me a little bit about the, the challenges that that presents organizations um, as they're going through, through M&A today. So I like to view M&A as a three-layer chocolate cake approach. So you can eat your dessert, which is the ROI you want to have. And the challenge with it at a fundamental level is doing good cyber due diligence, one, upsets the cadence of a deal. But two, if I came to you, JD, and I said, hey, we're doing due diligence. I'd like for my um, vendors to come on your network and tool around and do some diligence. What's your answer going to be? Uh, no, I'm not going to let you come into my system? That's not the right answer. The answer is, hell no, I'm not going to let you on my system. <laughs> so I'll use you as an example. You're building your business. You might want to acquire another company who has, you know, does other kinds of shows. Well, you're going to have incomplete information and you've got to ask the right questions. And then how do you build out your asset purchase agreement to deal with cyber risk? Because it's a latent kind of thing. Somebody could get onto that potential targets network. And if you don't find it, well, they'll wait until you 
uh, combined or integrate your system with them. And then they show up on your network. And if they ransomware you for $20 million and the cost of that acquisition was maybe two, it's literally beyond the purchase price. So that's where it can be really problematic in M&A. And you've seen it, um, Starwood and Marriott, Yahoo, Neiman Marcus. It's because people want to get the deal done and they can't help themselves to go and integrate as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to let my security go in there and look at it with a fine tooth comb. And that problem continues for that very reason. Again, security is inconvenient. You're upsetting the cadence of my deal. I can't get the ROI on this deal unless we integrate networks. Once you integrate a network, now you're inviting that threat actor to be able to access your network and now they can wreak even bigger havoc. And you have the challenge too of who owns it, right? Um, especially when you're going through MA too, because everybody um, owns it but doesn't want to own it at, at the same time, right? Talk to me a little bit about you know the need for good communication as decision makers face tough business decisions based on incomplete facts right now under extreme time pressures. What I would say about that is if you're in a company and you do tabletop exercises, which is best practice, one of the things you should consider doing is training your staff to be able to talk to the business people in a language they understand. You know, JD, if you and I were involved in an incident, I'm like, yes, JD, the root cause was the RDP protocol. We looked at the logs, it demonstrated that uh, the Microsoft Sentinel, which we just installed, wasn't working at an optimal rate. How do you make a business decision when you've gotten information like that instead of someone saying, what we learned, JD, is we didn't have multi-factor authentication. They were able to get in the network. These are the areas that have gone to, and this is what we think is a risk-based approach. Now you're getting actionable information, but what happens far too often is I end up being in the middle of being like the translator. And sometimes things can get lost in translation. So I can't overemphasize enough how important it is when you do tabletops with your team, if you're a CISO or the IT team, of thinking, how, what does the C-suite need to know? And how can we communicate that in a way that's understandable to them? Because it's not only a problem in-house for the company, but you know, I work with a variety of different cyber vendors and it can be a challenge for their staff too, because that's the way that they're wired. And the business people are wired a different way and they many times talk past each other. Talk to me uh, uh, when we're dealing with the, the, the CISO, um, the stance of when, not if, when it comes to, to ransomware and breaches and, and how you're advising um, leaders to have the, the when approach. I think the biggest challenge that I faced there is number one, how many organizations can afford to have a CISO? You have to be of a certain size. And then of course, one of the biggest risks that you have to manage as a company isn't necessarily the risk internal to your company. Cause if you have a CISO, you're probably taking it pretty seriously, but then it comes down to, well, look at all the vendors you have in your ecosystem that connect to you. Target is a great example. Who knew they would get breached because their HVAC vendor who monitors HVAC at their retail locations would get hacked and it would give them the hacker keys to the target kingdom, which they utilized. So it's really a challenge of how do you manage all of those vendors and how do you think through 
what to do there because that's for many companies, their biggest risks. It's not necessarily your company, but who are you connected to who doesn't take security very seriously, particularly if you have thousands of vendors, that's really hard to manage. Yeah, that third-party risk management is, is something that continues to come up in conversations that we have you know, a, a, across the globe. As an attorney, what is surprising you today when it comes to how organizations are dealing with third-party risk? I think, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's, when I handle a ransomware event, you kind of pull back the kimono and you see wherever you see where everything went wrong. And so what I see a lot of times is what I'll call like expedient IT. Like a company's like, well, we're SOC 2 compliant. And I'm like, well, great, you're SOC 2 compliant, but why do you have a bunch of your uh, remote employee workers who have no multi-factor and it wasn't installed with all of your employees? That's like the number one thing you can do that doesn't cost a lot. It's just a better Microsoft license or a few other things. But I see that. Uh, other things I see with third-party uh, vendor risk management, uh, I'll give you another good example. There's a lot of uh, high-flying startups out there who have some really cool products, but their deals are getting delayed because when I get brought in to look at their contract, they haven't dealt with security, they haven't dealt with privacy, and so what happens? Their deal gets delayed. Why? Because they're not taking these things seriously, but yet I know, because they complain about my team, well, all these other people didn't ask for it. I'm like, well, then they're not asking the right questions. How can you think in 2022, you can provide me software as a service and not tell me that all of your employees who touch our data aren't using MFA? You just, you can't do that. And what I'm saying is the fact that they get so frustrated with us, it tells me all these other companies on these deals, they aren't asking those questions. Is cyber still an afterthought for a lot of organizations? In my humble opinion, yes. How do we get past that? How do we get past that? But, you know what? I'm going to use an example uh, I, I, I think we, we said earlier. Uh, let's use the seatbelt. So, JD, when you and I are growing up, did your parents wear their seatbelt or did they insist that you wear your seatbelt? Not, no. No, not when I was little. It, it took a long time before seatbelts became used and, and you know, enforced. So let's talk about that a little bit and you'll see where I'm heading with this. So what happened was, if you recall, remember Mothers Against Drunk Driving that started to point out how seatbelts could be helpful in helping people survive crashes and whatnot. Yeah. So there was education. And as we stand today, there's a, there's a state law in just about every state that requires what? That you wear your seatbelt. So in that case, it was a combination of education and a seatbelt. And now I'll go out on a limb here, JD. I bet you, does your car have uh, airbags, sensors, and everything? Oh yeah. Right. And that's another part of regulation that's required. We're ensconced in airbags. And so my point is, how do we make cybersecurity literally the 21st century digital seatbelt? And so I think you get there two ways. One, it's education, but that's slow. And two, it's what you're starting to see. More and more regulation. Because if companies aren't going to do the right thing, then they're going to get told to do the right thing. And there may be overreach in doing that because of how bad the hacks are. Like I said, look at blockchain. They've had multiple hacks for over uh, $500 million. And they want to be this high-flying industry. Well, if you keep letting these hacks 
occur and don't have security, you're inviting what from the regulators? A really heavy hammer. But I, I wish I had a better thought for you around it, but I really think it's education. I think inevitably it's going to be regulation to require what, what companies should do because security is a big spend. It's kind of amorphous. The threat keeps changing and a lot of companies just find a way not to do it. You know, the threat, it can, does continue to change and it's in the news, as I mentioned, all the time. Mm -hmm. Does it, is the, in your experience, the frequency increasing of these cyber incidents or is it just getting more high profile? I think it's both because in my experience, if, you know, you don't really need to go rob a bank anymore. And not only that, you can go out on the dark web and for about a thousand bucks or less, purchase malware or even higher ransomware as a service. They have that on the dark web. So it's become low cost to do it. And you are seeing when, like I said, with blockchain, drones, autonomous vehicles, think of all these newer technologies. They're making all the same mistakes around security because they want to scale. They want to become big fast and it's not free. It comes at the expense of what? Security. So it makes them inviting targets. So if I'm a cyber criminal and I'm looking at all these people not paying attention to security, what am I going to do? Exploit it. Yeah. Just Technology may evolve, but human nature stays alarmingly consistent. There's so many tools out there and the bad actors are getting more and more sophisticated. What advice would you give to, to CISOs to have these important conversations with their board, with their executive team? Um, not a sky and avoid the sky's falling conversation, right? Because that's easy to fall into. You know, sure. you know, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think what's happening now, and we're, we're talking about CISOs, and if we're talking about publicly traded companies, their role is really evolving now because these new SEC regulations that are now in comment that will go final probably here in May are requiring publicly traded companies to talk about the board expertise they have in cybersecurity. So I think what you're going to see is the CISO role is going to get elevated where just knowing good cybersecurity, that's table stakes. But now how does your role evolve into really being a business enterprise cyber risk manager, meaning how do we figure out how to promote the company's goals and weigh cybersecurity against what marketing needs, what operations needs? Because part of the challenge is if we have 100% security, even if we did, if you do that at the expense of trying to run the business so you can't run it at all, that won't work. So really it's figuring out how to have a balance. And right now that scale is is way too much towards you know, getting business operations done and not enough till security. I'm just looking to get that uh, teeter-totter to where it's more even. And I think some of these regulations from a CISO's perspective will elevate their role, but it requires that they change. I think one of the consequences of that will be if hey, I'm a middle market company and I wanna do business with these publicly traded companies, now they're gonna have more requirements on me because again, I'm third party supply chain risk and the SEC cares about that. So once again, I think you're gonna see regulations have ripple effects. I hate to have to, to say that because I'm all about trying to find economic ways to do the right thing, but I think we're this far into it that that does not appear to be working. It's probably gonna be some combination of some of these economic incentives driven by, hey, 
publicly traded companies, you're going to be listing in every 10K and 8Q, what are your cyber practices? And that filters down to these other companies who are privately held. The Biden executive order um, was a strong step forward. What's next, do you feel? I guess what's next is, you know, what do these notification requirements look like? Because I'm here to tell you, having dealt with them, what do you know in a data breach in 24, 48, or 72 hours? Not a whole lot. Yeah. And so I think it's helpful because the idea of sharing information, like if they hack one bank, if they're going to hack other banks, but you know, the financial services industries has a really good information sharing and analysis center. It's called the FSI SAC. So that's helpful. I think the area I would concentrate on JD is how do we start to have better communication from the government? You're noticing they're starting to try to get more information out there about threats because Let's be honest, we have some of the best cybersecurity capability in the world when it comes to the NSA and Cyber Command and whatnot. So how do we figure out how to get better sharing of real-time intel so companies learn things faster? The government wants sharing, but how does that look like from a government perspective to share information with the private sector? Because what's unique about us is obviously we have a government, but who owns most of the the infrastructure when it comes to our um, IT and whatnot. It's owned in the private sector with varying degrees of interest in upholding good cybersecurity hygiene. Wonderful. Last question for you. Sure. Ransomware, do you pay? Well, if we if you bring an FBI or Secret Service agent on the, the podcast, they're going to never tell you to pay. But ultimately, it's a business decision. And it's a business decision driven by these factors. One, do you have backups? And have you stress tested your backups so you know how long it'll take you to get them back up? Two, did the threat actor exfiltrate data? And they're basically saying, even if you use backups, we'll just dump the data on the dark web. And then three, how much do you want to trust the threat actor? Because they could do it sometime down the line. But the reality is, an overwhelming majority of companies pay the ransom because from a business perspective, they wanna get their network back up and running sooner rather than later, which is why ransomware has become such the huge industry that it is. And, I'm, and we're not even talking about the biggest industry, which is still phishing that le leads to business email compromise and wire fraud. That's not as sexy, but that still happens all the time. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you for, a, speaking at our Atlanta summit, it was a great session. And after that, I, I had to grab you. I'm like, we, we, we got to talk in the podcast. Thank you so much for, for sharing there and, and sharing with us here today, Justin. Uh, well, thank you for having me. And I really want to show appreciation for how uh, nice and welcoming the CDM media team was because it's tough to put on all those events and you guys do a great job. Wonderful. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Justin for joining us here today. If you want to check out past episodes of CDM Media's podcast, go to cdmmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>